0: It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present.
1: Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living
0: being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us!
1: Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts at a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Keith Phipps and
0: Tasha Robinson.
1: Genevieve Koski is behind the boards tonight, hiding from Darren Aronofsky metaphors, but she'll be back next time. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. We usually express our gratitude to Delmark Records for allowing us to record at their home base, Riverside Studios, but this week, we can't seem to find our way out. All we need to do is just open the door to the studio and leave, but something is keeping us pinned to these microphones. Tasha, what could it be?
0: I actually have no idea, but the excuse that I'm going to give is that we're recording a podcast and we can't leave until we finish recording because that's how podcasting works. Oh, I see. If you're feeling a little confined though, this week's pairing might explain it. In Darren Aronofsky's new film Mother, Jennifer Lawrence is stuck in a creepy old estate in the middle of nowhere while a series of bizarre inexplicable events drive her to the brink of madness. Based on the trailer and the poster, we originally thought a pairing with Roman Polanski's Repulsion or Rosemary's Baby might be the obvious choice. But after seeing the movie, we were surprised to discover a premise and tone that's closer to the surreal black comedy of louis Buñuel, so we've decided to pair it with Buñuel's 1962 classic the exterminating angel about a fancy dinner party where the guests can't leave and they gradually descend into madness and savagery how long till that happens to us scott
1: well i've already torn up the floorboards and started a fire tasha but while we still have some grip on our sanity we should use this time to debate two provocative controversial films First up, we're going to talk about the exterminating angel and how Louis Buñuel's deadpan satire and surrealism reveals disturbing insight into human nature. Then, later in the week, we'll bring in Mother, Darren Aronofsky's allegorical horror film about God, art, and the perpetual cycle of creation and death. But for now, tuck your chicken feathers and rooster feet into your handbag. It's going to be a bumpy night. <laughs>
0: Me van a perdonar si altero un poco el orden
1: natural del menú. Vamos a comenzar con un guiso maltés que según costumbre en la isla se sirve como d'oeuvre. Parece que abre el apetito. Hígado, miel, almendras y con una salsa muy especiada. Early in Louis Buñuel's The Exterminating Angel, the morning after the guests at a dinner party wake up in the same room together, unable to leave, a woman compares her disorientation to her experience on a train derailment. She emerged from the incident unscathed, but in her words, quote, A third-class car full of village folk was squashed like an accordion. She goes on to admit that, quote, the misery of those wretches didn't move me, and a friend gives an understanding nod. I think the lower classes are less sensitive to pain, she says. Conversations like this drip with acid, revealing a contempt for bourgeois elites that Buniel expressed often in his career. It's also an example of his sense of humor, which is so dry that the laughs tend to stick in the throat. Yet at the core of this scene is an insight into how some members of the upper class think, they assume they're better, more civilized people than the wretches whose lives are beneath consideration. They feel they've earned their social status through their intelligence, sophistication, and general superiority, and hardship is foreign to them because of it. The exterminating angel presents a stiff test of those presumptions. Over the course of the days and weeks and perhaps months that these wealthy guests are trapped in a single room, unable to leave, they have all their privilege stripped away from them. The same people who turned up in top hats and mink coats are smashing the walls with an axe to get water. Roasting sheep over a fire made of pulled up floorboards and broken furniture and repeatedly coming to blows. In Buñuel's universe, they're given the cosmic punishment of turning into society's wretches. As one character says, quote, Everything I've hated since I was a child, rudeness, violence, filth, are now our inseparable companions. Yet The Exterminating Angel isn't entirely a broadside against the ruling class, or at least it's less predictable than that. It's a film full of peculiar, mysterious impulses, like the sheep and bear cub that wander the house with a disembodied hand that skitters out of a closet, or an ending that finds the authorities opening fire into a crowd. Working late during his period in Mexico, in exile from the Franco government, Buñuel has a strong anti-fascist, anti-elite agenda, but he pursues it with a sense of surprise and surreal whimsy that's more art than politics. His vision of anarchy could not be mistaken for anyone else's.
0: de todos, señores. Peor que el pánico no hay nada. Una situación como esta no puede durar indefinidamente. No estamos encantados, amigos. Este no es el castillo de un brujo. Mira allí. No, en la cumbre. es. lleno de majestad, se diría un So, right
1: off the bat, what did you think of the Exterminating Angel?
0: This isn't my first rodeo with the exterminating angel. This is honestly, this is my favorite Bunyal, and mm-hmm. it's one of my all-time favorite films. I'm just very fond of this movie. And this time through, I tried to make more of an examination of why that is. On one level, it's just I, one of my least favorite things in the world is entitlement. Like, I think entitlement is at the base of just about every bad human impulse that we get in terms of, of racism and sexism and classism, all of the abuses uh, that people heap on each other. I think stem from that baseline urge of "I'm better than you because I'm blank." So watching him dissect it in such a an interesting way is just really satisfying. But the way he does it, this like combination of like a magical realism, a sort of surrealism, and the absurdity he brings to it, I think is just is really entertaining and really solid. And I think the individual characters are interesting, and the way it plays out is just exciting and horrifying in just a really visceral way.
2: Mm-hmm. It's actually was my first radio with uh, this particular Buñuel. I feel like I've seen a lot of Buñuel, but somehow not this one. And there's, well, there's a lot to see. It's a pretty extensive filmography. But I mean, yeah, it was, I, it was, a terrific movie. I mean, I think part of what makes it work is exactly what you're talking about the sense of privilege being being stripped down, but also the refusal to be simple about it. These are, you know, these aren't necessarily all bad people at heart. And as absurd as the scenario is. The reactions register as how humans would really react in such a situation, which makes it both, I think, a funnier and a scarier
1: film. Yeah, that's an a really interesting point now that I think about it. I, I mentioned in the uh, intro about them having to you know, axe the walls in order to get at the water in the pipes and having to lure, a, lure sheep into the room so they can roast it over a spit. I mean, these are things that, that I guess not awful human beings would have to do, but they are uh, it is certainly a humbling experience for people who are not used to any kind of adversity at all. But I think if the film had been just raw contempt, I don't know if it would be as strong as it is, even though, even though, as Tasha said, I mean, there is something really satisfying about watching these people struggle a little bit. Uh, but it's just full of so many surprising moments and little, you know, surrealist sequences and dream sequences and you know, occasional moments of grace, you know, that ending, which is surprising on another, a lot of different levels. Buñuel is isn't working in a really tidy way in this, is as disciplined as this scenario is, you know, keeping all of these characters... In this room and, and having an escalate as it does, there's still so much room for him to surprise you and improvise. And it's kind of an exciting movie.
0: Scott, you and I both saw uh, Michael Haneke's new movie, Happy yes. End at TIFF. And we we talked a bunch about that, about how that movie is uh, just a very a baseline, obvious takedown of the bourgeoisie mm-hmm. and, and of elitism and privilege. And it's kind of boring. Um, yeah. It seemed like for both of us it was kind of an insight into the degree to which you can agree with a film's premise and still find it really dull if it's a movie that doesn't approach the things that you believe in a, a remotely interesting way. I
1: mean, that, and that's something that, you know, not to get too sidetracked, but that's something that, that Hanukkah has done his whole career. I mean, he, his film has attacked the bourgeoisie over and over again but there's always that other layer Mm -hmm. uh suspense or you know if you think of something like cachet or even funny games which i know you hate or or the seventh continent is first film there's always some other element at play rather than just straight up contempt and and uh, i think you see in the exterminating angel there's a fullness to it and a spontaneity everything is is unexpected and there's something i mean really i've seen it i've seen this film a couple times i don't know if i've seen it as many times as You have Tasha, but it is a perpetually exciting experience to watch it again and again because there is so much packed into it.
2: And again, I I think part of what makes it work is these characters are kind of unaware of their own alienation and distance from people who aren't in the same class. And and it doesn't even really dawn on them. This is a thing. I don't think I don't even think by the end of the scenario it does either. I'm not sure anyone learns any lessons over the course of this
1: film. No, they wind up in a church and then (laughs) which I guess allows Buniel to switch focus to another institution yeah, that change, he does that. change
2: targets. <laughs> yeah, he, just changes,
1: he just changes target. But so I was curious, just as a baseline, how much you've seen of Buñuel's work and, and where this might fit into his filmography.
0: I think relatively little compared to Keith, certainly. I mean, I've seen the big classics, uh, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, Obscure Object of Desire, de Andalou. I guess I would have to look through Belle his filmography. Oh, of course, Belle du Jour. Mm-hmm. I've seen kind of the high points, but not really uh, a lot of the, the smaller films or the earlier films, apart from Shen, which is I mean, you're not allowed to come get through film school without seeing that. But uh, Keith, like, what what am I missing? what What do I really need to see out of his filmography? Um, well,
2: there's a, there's a bunch I haven't seen, so I'm not necessarily the expert to talk to. But I mean, the one there's one close to this called called Simon of the Desert, which is yeah. a really interesting film that that kind
1: of uh, it's only 45 minutes. Too. Yeah,
2: it's very short. You can watch it watch it over lunch break sometime. Mm-hmm. But it's it implies some break? sort of, sort of the, the, yeah, sort of the same like sort of like offhand surrealism of this uh, to a, a a biblical story, quote unquote biblical story. Yeah, it's, it's it's, it's quite good, too. But, I mean, the obvious companion piece to this is the one you have seen, which is Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm.
1: That's the one with the dinner where they It doesn't happen.
0: They're perpetually <laughs> trying to have yeah. dinner together. It's, it's literally the opposite of this. Yeah, yeah. It's still a takedown of the bourgeoisie and their pretensions and their yeah. elitism, but it's about groups of people trying to get together for dinner and, and it never quite happens. Yeah.
1: I've seen a bunch of Buñuel's uh movies i mean but I, in terms of pertinence to this it definitely is that those two films are companions though i certainly would recommend I, I really like land without bread i mean i think that's just that is a really rough film but fascinating in terms of the way uh it plays with the documentary as a as a form and in, in what we consider real on screen and i'm, I'm as far as his mexico period is concerned i'm a big fan of a movie called los Olvidados, uh, which is about uh, street kids in me- Mexico, and they're and he's it's got a very interesting perspective. It's very unsentimental. Uh, these kids are often you know committing crimes. I mean, it's a very tough, tough movie, but uh, but also full of uh, grace and wonder, and um, really worth checking out. But yeah, I'm just uh, but I think in terms of this movie i think there's a certain type of film that he made throughout his career that this more fits into
0: yeah and i mean this one also uh, that obscure object of desire i think loops in with the trilogy as well because it's it's yet another film about somebody trying over and over to to get one thing that he feels entitled to in this case sex with a woman that he's attracted to and he keeps getting turned away or getting lost in the same kind of sort of surreal nightmarish kind of way i think all three of those movies have kind of of a baseline idea of living in a literal nightmare, that, that kind of dreamlike experience where you're after something specific and it keeps receding from you and you keep sort of forgetting why it's there or why you're looking for it and then coming back to it. And the desire itself becomes this sort of agony that you can't relieve because you can't you can't figure out how to relieve it.
1: And obscure
2: Objects and Desires remind me of another connection to mother, but we'll get into that. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. It's anyway. it's very much of a piece.
1: Yes. I mean, so, I mean, the film is an allegory, but for what? <laughs> and what? And what does what does the film have to tell us about civilization?
2: I feel like I'd probably appreciate this film on an even deeper level if I knew more about Franco's Spain and the history. And there are probably some specific references and specific character types that I'm, I'm going to miss just not being as as well-versed in that. But I mean... The obvious thing is the ruling class, the privilege, the people who are out of touch. I mean, we don't have those in our history anymore, but at one point they were very, very much the controlling force in, uh, in in society.
1: Yeah, and they're not really going to care from one administration to the next what what actually happens to ordinary people, too, right? right? I mean, they're so cloistered off that it really almost. I mean, again, I I, I think you're right. I, you know, if if you had more of a historical context, you might. Be able to get more out of it, but you almost don't need any in a way because this is a story that gets told all the time in terms of who the elite classes in many countries led by despotic rulers and either they either look away or are actually a party to atrocity.
2: It uh, would be hard to remake this film now and in any number of different spots around the world.
0: That's very true, including this one. Including this
2: one. Um, I didn't want to
0: get too political here, guys. Yeah, that I
2: was mean,
0: hu- uh. <laughs> Buñuel himself, uh, like, had put a warning on the film that uh, it didn't adhere to any kind of reason or, or interpretation, and I don't believe him. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, it just—it seems so straight up, clearly metaphorical, especially when compared to like his early, incredibly surrealist stuff. This has a narrative, it has a flow, and it just—it appears to have a direct target. One of the things that I enjoy most about it, I think, is the distinctive way people make up excuses for their behavior, for their inexplicable behavior. Mm -hmm. And when you say, what does this teach us about society? I think more than anything what this film teaches us about society is the way people find ways to justify whatever it is that they're doing. Especially (laughs) whatever it is that they want to be doing. And I just, uh, one of my favorite sequences is the sequence where everybody is inexplicably not leaving at four in the morning. They're taking off their tuxedo jackets, which is absolutely unthinkable. And the women are lying down (laughs) on couches this
1: be night one then. When night one. When just not leaving the original party. And
0: the hosts are sitting in the corner saying, how rude they're all being. This is un- unheard of. This is unspeakable. Let's do what they're doing. <laughs> but we're, we're doing it to excuse their behavior. And people keep going to the door and then not leaving. But they always have an excuse. They always make up some reason to make what they're doing seem rational. And it isn't until like the next morning long after it should have occurred to somebody that they start realizing that there's something going on that they can't just wave away and even so throughout the film they continue to make excuses for themselves to make it make sense
1: yeah I was grateful that, that there wasn't a literal force field that, they, <laughs> that, they, that was blocking them or some physical thing that they could get past. some sort of exterminating
0: angel standing in the doorway it's, it's
2: creepier a, the way it is though isn't it it's no it's, it's much better, better. Was, They themselves out the door it's, it's yeah yeah it's,
1: it's much better that way I, and I'm, I was relieved that they were we're just making excuses like that, rather than actually, you know, pounding on some sort of invisible shield. So that was a relief. The other th- point I wanted to make in terms of like what this tells us about civilization is just is what what happens to humans, not just members of the upper class, but but all humans when civilization or when the expectations of how the social just, contract yeah when it, when that just breaks down you know and, and and people are under duress um the protections that they have which of course for the upper classes are much greater than the, than the lower classes when those go away how do people respond to that i mean um and it, it feels very true to what kind of response that would be and, and it's something that that these folks at the beginning of the movie they would look down on people for reacting in this manner to desperate circumstances. But of course, you know, when they're faced with these circumstances, they react the way they do, or or worse. I mean, they behave worse than they should. That even they should. So I find that fascinating.
0: Yeah, they, I mean, they react to each other. This was eight years after *Lord of the Flies* was first published, and it's a very *Lord of the Flies* scenario mm-hmm. where it the, they move in the a direction of kind of every man for themselves, especially when the water first comes out. But at the same time, I, I think it's really interesting that they they pick at each other in what they would see as a lower class kind of way. You know, shoving and clawing at each other and, and fighting for what little resources they have and going after that sheep. But they also pick at each other in a very elitist upper class kind of way where they just ding each other's manners and call each other names in a, a politely acidic drawing room kind of way. You know, it's it's not done for one of them to turn to the other and say, you smell like a hyena. Uh, <laughs> you know, that is that is breaching the bounds of etiquette. But there are other places where they they just turn to each other and say sort of, you know, acidic, like how dare you behave in such a manner kind of way. There's still whole on to all of these pretensions of how their class behaves, even as they're, you know, pooping in vases in the closet.
1: <laughs> in the face, that is the vases one of my one of my f- favorite bits of the movie is when, uh, when a character takes a bunch of flowers out of a vase and c- they consider uh, drinking whatever uh, horrible flower water is inside. It's not that
0: bad. <laughs> no? And then they promptly turn around and say, well, the servant doesn't seem to have a problem with it. Right. Like the yeah. servant can drink that water. I am very curious what you guys make of the whole – there's a sequence where the women have all been using the, the bathroom vases and they all come out and have a little exchange about how there's like fresh mountain air blowing out of them and there was an eagle soaring by below one of them, like 40 feet below. I have no idea what to make of that.
1: Yeah, me neither. That was a closet of mystery, wasn't
2: it? Yeah, I think the mind kind of willing itself to escape maybe or just a bit of unseen surrealism that's
1: just described and not depicted. Yeah, maybe. That that yeah. was bad. By that, so I have no answer for that.
0: What, what about the severed hand? I mean, I know it's a Shenandoah reference, but yeah. ab- apart from that. There's a severed hand creeping around, and eventually somebody stabs it. What? Well,
1: it's only one person, though, right? Yeah, it, it, and
0: she's hallucinating.
1: Yeah, so I think we can take it at that. And then, but then she, she breaks out of that hallucination, and people are watching her trying to stab her own hand, right?
0: Oh, I think she's trying to stab somebody else's hand because there's somebody else that like pulls away and is like oh, okay. weeping hysterically. Okay, but
1: nevertheless, nevertheless, it is a. I think we can mark that up as entirely her hallucination. But what a great thing to just put in this movie! What a
0: strange nightmare yeah. on, on top of this much more like. Literal linear nightmare,
1: and, and also you get, you get whimsical things like the bear, like the little bear cub <laughs> scurrying around in the other room. Sometimes a
2: person in a bear suit, rather obviously, but that's kind of adds to the uh, adds to the effect. I think.
1: Person? Oh, I thought it was. I thought that effect was well handled. Keith, I did yeah. not see any <laughs> humans. <laughs> So what do you make of the style of the film and the tone for that matter?
0: I think the tone – one of the things about the tone is just like the dryness of the humor. I One of the gags I always forget is the business where the hostess tells everybody that one of the main courses is coming out first and they all compliment it and then the waiter – trips and drops it uh-huh. and half of the room thinks it's like a hilarious joke that she's put on and you as an audience member are thinking oh this is him taking down the the elitists because they don't know how to interpret like what they've seen but then it, it kind of seems like the hostess did plan that as a gag because oh. when the one man says you know i didn't find this funny she immediately slips off to the back and she doesn't like upbraid the servants for dropping the food. She says she basically says, "Okay, cancel the bear cub." <laughs> you know, Mister So and So doesn't doesn't like jokes, mm-hmm. so we're gonna we're gonna not do the bear cub after all. Leave the sheep. Put the sheep someplace else. Yeah,
2: this is before the movie really gets strange. Do you
0: know? Yes, yeah. yes. It's like, oh
1: yeah, it's fine. We just take for granted that that the evening's entertainment will involve a bunch of sheep and a bear cub.
0: Yeah. So I mean, that's just sort of an early indication that you maybe can't fully trust anybody's behavior. Because there's a both a level of like weird Bunyellian whimsy going on, and a level of pretense among the the dinner guests themselves. There's also that the business where the servants are trying to escape, and everybody enters the hallway. They they duck back behind a door as uh, like all of the the guests stream in and decide to go upstairs to doff their coats. And then once everybody's gone, they start to go out. But everybody's coming in again, and it's just – it's a straight repetition of the shot of people coming in. Yeah. So that,
1: that happens twice too, right? There's
2: at least, at least one more moment of repetition. Yeah, I think
1: there's a moment – like a toast, I think, mm-hmm. where, where that, that is repeated. Yes. Yeah, and That's people right.
0: respond differently the second time. Right. From what I've read, there are 27 different sequences of repetition in hmm. the film i didn 't well, do I didn't a,
1: notice anywhere near that many but
0: yeah i didn 't do a straight count, but it definitely there's definitely things that happen multiple times and I think in
1: terms of tone and style, the standout element for me is that he never underlines anything it just happens. the whole thing is matter of fact and very, very 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 dry to the point where i i don 't know if I laughed out loud during the film at all. But I think it's a very funny movie. <laughs> it's that kind of experience. He doesn't elbow you in point and say, "This is funny." It just happens, and and it's and it's often weird and inexplicable, and often very acidic, but still matter of fact. That standalone image to me is
2: the one shot of the room that they're all in, shot from the next room over, and it's kind of beneath the the arching doorway and it's lit in a really interesting way but it kind of you know it drives home the fact that there's nothing keeping them in there uh except for whatever it is it's keeping them in there it's scary it's a a very unnerving image in the midst of all this you know very dry satirical humor i mean the horror of the moment is, is not uh lost on this film
0: it also reads like a stage proscenium. Yes. The shape of that, that doorway arch looks very much like the opening to a stage. And every time we back off like one room to look into that room and see how they're continuing to behave, I kind of expected to see an audience sitting in the first room watching them because it feels so so staged. It feels like you're you're looking you're in the zoo looking in on the animals. You're sitting in the audience looking in on the presentation.
1: There's a shot too when they've finally kind of figured out how to get themselves out of this predicament where it's just everyone is just frozen in tableau did you notice this as when well they're
2: recreating the original when movie? they're recreating yeah. it
1: and everyone is just is just frozen and he holds it like that in kind of a medium long shot I that is a really fascinating shot and I, and I think this is a really tough film to pull off cinematically because you know you do have you know largely a one room setting and and all of these characters packed within it and you have to give both a sense of of the space being crowded but also be able to move the camera around to to catch a lot of individual moments too so uh, i think the mise-en-scène is a, is very strong in the, in the film
0: Oh, yeah. And particularly watching the space deteriorate as they start taking everything apart and everything within their space gets wrecked. Yeah. Which if you want to see everything in this film as a metaphor, the metaphor of the elites kind of chewing on each other and destroying their own environment heedlessly because of their appetites is also a pretty heady symbol.
1: Yeah. And I love that shot of when they have the fire going of uh, there's another kind of medium long shot where the uh, room is you can see the room just filling with smoke. Smoke while they're just standing there, and it's just, it's such a striking image. But again, he's not a he's not that showy a uh, director. I mean, there are some a couple of really striking surrealist uh, dream you know sequences or dream sequences in the movie, but um, the craft here is is pretty. Subtle, for the most part.
2: Mm-hmm. It's more strange things happen than than strange images, you know, crafted to appear strange,
1: for sure. So I was curious to ask you all if you've thought about how you'd behave in a situation <laughs> like that, because we I've made the point before that Buniel is attacking the bourgeoisie here, but. Uh, he could also uh, be said to have made a film about human nature.
2: Yeah, I mean that's part of why it works too. Is you, you have to put yourself in that scenario, and and if you, I think if you're a reflective at all person, you're not just going to say, "I would not behave like that," because you know you don't know. This is a desperate situation. You might. I like to think I would not eat you, Scott. Oh, thanks. But if driven to it, maybe yeah. I would.
0: I don't know. From where I'm sitting, you're looking pretty tasty, and we've only <laughs> been podcasting for like 25 minutes. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't watch a film like this without putting myself in it and seeing how badly I would probably come out. Like, I would like to think that I wouldn't claw anybody's face off to get to the water first. I would like to think that I would stand back and wait and see if uh, they drank it and got sick, because who knows like, what pipe that's coming out of. Yeah. Like, I would play it canny. I've been in escape rooms. I know how they go. <laughs> but uh, no, I'm the kind of person that when my friends are talking about all the Awesome stuff they do in the zombie apocalypse. I'm admitting that I'm the one that's going to get bitten and then hide it from everybody until I turn. (laughs) Like, I have no illusions about how well I would behave in in a crisis like this. And I strongly suspect that I would be, uh, you know, hanging back and waiting for everything to turn horrible uh, because I'm enough of a cynic to believe that it's going to get worse. And from what I've read, uh, Bunyal has said, like, said later in his life, if he had made that movie later in life, they absolutely would have turned on each other and it would have become a cannibalistic situation. (laughs) He he feels that he didn't push himself far enough in that scenario. And apparently it was the first movie that he made that he had complete control of, uh, complete directorial and... Editorial and narrative control of, Mm. and even so, he just he felt that he wasn't, maybe he wasn't either courageous or bitter enough at that time of life to push it as far as he thinks it should have gone. This is a
1: very courageous and bitter film. (laughs) (laughs) You're talking about a matter of degrees. I mean, I guess maybe the the question then ends up being like, is this a film about how this specific type of person or these specific types of people? Would react in this circumstance, or is this a film about how humans react would react in this situation right. i mean like, I, I, Maybe
2: I, I, why not both but because we don 't apart from the one servant who 's left behind, and I think tellingly is the servant closest to the ruling class yeah. we don 't get a read on how anyone else would react, so I, don't, I think I think the focus is squarely on these types of people
1: he eats paper though that 's the one detail that kind yeah. of stands out for me about that. Servant is that he reasonably early in this situation uh, eats paper as a way to fool himself or his stomach into believing that he's having something of substance.
0: Yeah, and that's and in the process of, of trying to persuade one of the guests that it's okay, he tells this really fairly personal story about his life and his childhood and, and where he came from as a person. And it's a very humanizing moment for somebody who's technically of the lower classes, which I don't feel like we get that with any of the upper Upper crust people. I think the fact that all of the other servants feel just as strong a compulsion to leave as the elites feel a compulsion to stay is really telling. I, I think that ultimately this is a story about the upper class because – you know, in a way, it's certainly saying that the the lower classes have their own compulsions and have their own, you know, poor decisions and certainly have their own excuse making. But those are they're different. They're different in nature and they're different in where they end up. I think ultimately this is I mean, it's in certainly insightful about human nature.
1: Yeah and I think in terms of class I mean I think we uh, the hypocrisy of that behavior the fact that they they are reduced to be behaving as, as they do is what really stands out I mean they may be they may be reacting as all humans would but they feel like they're above that they're above that kind of a base reaction mm-hmm. to the, to a situation like this. Uh, they feel that way, but but uh, but in fact, when they're in that situation, they're going to react. I uh, think it's also a, a depiction of people who have never
2: been punished for anything. In, in a weird way, this movie got me thinking about uh, the act of killing and the mm. look of silence where you have these people who have been complicit in, if not genocide in, in this case, but at least repressing or suppressing the, the uh, working class and they've never suffered any punishment for it. And and there's a kind of moral rot that's set in, in some ways. Maybe not for all the characters, but for some of them. Those films are such a, a chilling depiction of, of crime unpunished. And, and, and I think we get a, a smaller version of that here.
0: Yeah, and I think The Act of Killing in particular is another terrific film about the excuses that people make. Mm. And the way they justify their behavior. And the way people lack empathy if they're not put in a situation where they they develop empathy early in life you can go through your life without it and it leads to horrible places I mean I think one of the most interesting things here about this film is the complete lack of empathy they have for the lower classes and that sequence that you cited in the intro where they talk about how oh you know the lower classes just don't feel pain the way we do and one of them compares the lower classes to a bull that she saw in a bullfight, who wasn't expressing emotion and likens that to the lower classes and just that leap from i saw a suffering animal that i couldn't relate to so i'm assuming it doesn't feel pain and i'm just assuming that other human beings who are not of my social class are like that like that is an incredibly incredibly dark series of connections so i want to talk about the
1: ending uh because they do finally liberate themselves from this situation but the movie doesn't end there the movie ends with them going to church And it also ends with a sequence where outside of the church, the authorities, whoever the authorities are, are gunning down civilians. Um, So I want to break that down. What did you make of those two things together as a kind of exclamation point to this film?
0: I mean, for me, the biggest takeaway from the church sequence, what you're what you're kind of circling around is the fact that once everybody's in the church, they experience it all over again. They can't mm-hmm. leave. Uh, the priests start making excuses to not leave. The so
2: I believe so the thing I read that I pointed out that all the characters we've seen so far disappear once it starts in the, in the church sequence that we don't see them.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, you certainly see them during the actual church service, and you don't see them physically leave the church. Right. So I assumed they were there, but uh, you're right. I don't remember them in any specific shots. Yeah. It's interesting. Huh. Mm -hmm. Well, I definitely don't know what to make of that. The fact that the same dynamic plays out in the church and that the last shot of the, the movie is sheep going into the church, presumably, <laughs> you know, to provide the parishioners with food because they're going to be in there for literally God only knows how long. <laughs> to me, what that says is that this is not a movie about religion. I mean, you have the title, The Exterminating Angel. People – I've read a lot of interpretations of this film, and a lot of people really want to interpret it as God is visiting justice on the elite. God is punishing the bourgeoisie for their behavior and the idea is that there is actually an angel of death keeping them in this room. To me, the church sequence says – you know, the the church itself is not holy, people who believe in God are not special, and the Catholic Church itself as an organization is not any better than the ruling class. Like To me, that the whole church sequence is kind of Buniel saying this is just as bad an organization, and it's not God punishing the elites because there is not a God who is specifically judging people who behave in this way because people who believe in God are being punished in the exact same way. It's like a, a Surrealist force of nature, perhaps, but I I just don't see it. I see the closing sequences him saying, you know, this is not expressly a film about religious vengeance.
1: Yeah, I'd be curious uh, about that reading too, because from where I'm sitting, and again, I'm not an expert in Buñuel in religion, though religion does play. A role in several of his movies. Uh, uh, Simon of the Desert for one. The Milky Way is about a pilgrimage, so it's there as well. And, and I know that he he's gotten plenty of trouble from you know what the Catholic League or some one of these one some some of these religious or organizations for his work. So he's considered, it, I guess, a sacrilege. <laughs> um, so I, I think we could safely say that his attitude toward. Uh, the church is is no more charitable than his attitude toward the upper crust. But I think like that juxtaposition between them being in this church still sort of cloistered away from what is happening outside, which is violent and real and perhaps maybe reflective of how dissent is suppressed in, say, uh, the Franco regime or any other type of regime. That seems kind of like a political statement that he's making with that juxtaposition there that, again, I don't necessarily have the... Historical context to 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 identify exactly what, but again,
2: I think it, I think it transports pretty easily across eras and to the point where where it's it's still resonant. I yeah. mean,
0: it's resonant in 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 part in the way it recalls the Battle of Algiers. You know, it's a very similar sequence to what we get in the big battle sequence towards the end of Battle of Algiers.
1: Oh, right of just of open fire mm-hmm. into a, into a crowd. But we have no context for it. I mean, that's the thing about Battle Algiers is that we have nothing but context for, for why that happened. But here it's, just, it's really out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's
2: also kind of, you know, what armies do. It's not an uncommon sight of, of, of the military suppressing masses in such a way.
1: And I think we also have to know what it is that these people are walled off from right like what is the reality on the ground that they with their in their fancy dinner party with their top hats and the mink coats uh, are severed off from and so it gives you that little glimpse of that at, at the end of this state-sponsored violence that that extra layer you know right before we get the the bells ring and the movie ends well that's the end of the movie and so perhaps that's a good time to end this segment we'll be right back with feedback Now it's time for feedback. Due to the Toronto Film Festival, we've been banking podcast episodes a little earlier than usual, so we don't have feedback yet for our Stand By Me It pairing. However, we got tons of emails on our Soderbergh Heist double feature. Keith, do you want to dig in? It's trying to feel like the pre-taped
2: call-in show from Mr. Show.
0: <laughs> slightly out of sync with everybody else. A little bit.
2: But sure, this, is the, this letter is from Chris Lynch in Glasgow. A nice city. Chris writes... I just wanted to give you a bit of feedback on your recent Logan Lucky Ocean's Eleven episode, as I was slightly surprised that you didn't delve into an aspect of Logan Lucky that most struck me, specifically the interesting tension between the high tech filmmaking ethos of Soderbergh and the defiantly analog world of the protagonists of Logan Lucky. Tatum's character almost makes a religion of not having a phone, not being on the map, and the lived in authenticity of country music. However, when this culminated in the scene of his daughter explicitly turning away from her Rihanna number to singing John Denver's Country Roads, I was left feeling very mixed. I understand a lot of people have found this moment quite moving, and I see that it's tied into a major theme of this film, that of not giving up what is true and grounded in your local culture for the lure of commercialized globalization. However, I'm always uncomfortable with the religion of authenticity, something I know that Soderbergh is ambivalent about, as can be seen in the tension between his filmmaking methods and his film's subjects. Also, I'm not sure I like the image of a wee girl deliberately turning her back on a black female pop artist to embrace a male country music star. It just didn't sit right. Anyway, generally I really enjoyed the film. I found it funny aesthetically accomplished as ever and surprisingly poignant. I just continued to grapple with the central ambiguity around technology and authenticity and how this sits in Soderbergh's work as a whole.
1: Yeah, I was intrigued by this letter and I'm not really sure what to make of it. I certainly didn't think at the time about what the implication might be of the daughter turning away from the Rihanna song and embracing this John Denver song. But I don't know.
2: Yeah, I think you can't just say the subtext doesn't matter here. The fact that it's a pop song by a black female artist versus a male country artist. You know, that stuff, it's its there. It's also her dad's favorite song. And a film where she's been pulled away from her father uh, subtly and unsubtly throughout. You know, it's, it draws her. It's a moment of confirming that they have a relationship. I don't know. Yeah, I, I get it, though. It's it's interesting observation.
0: Although, again, there's kind of a cause and effect there. I mean, the reason he sets that up as her dad's favorite song is because he's making a point about authenticity and sure. about country and about this white male star that, uh, you know, was embraced as kind of the heart of Americana, even though, for instance, he was from West Virginia and apparently hadn't been there when he wrote the song. I mean, to me, like I'm usually I would go so far as to say oversensitive about the racial and gender overtones of movies and decisions like this. For me, it almost felt like rejecting the Rihanna song was rejecting something that was older than her, was rejecting something that was, yeah, inauthentic to her, but less because embracing a song about West Virginia was low tech and authentic to the world and more about how it was authentic to her, which is to say a little girl who is maybe too young to be plastering a thousand pounds of makeup on her face and dancing to something produced by like a kind of a sexed up pop star.
2: Yeah. It's, it's doesn't get into pageant culture that much, but I mean, I think you kind of counseling you to know a little bit about it I and mean, like, sort of this, as like you say super feminized prematurely sexualized pageant culture. Uh, it is, uh, this is probably not a girl who naturally gravitates to that kind of thing. Who probably would rather hang out with her dad and work on a car. So it is a turning back on all that as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, there is, I certainly see the point about kind of rejecting artificiality and maybe reifying uh, authenticity as this uh, idealized version of, of reality. And, and maybe it does play a little phony. I'm sort of curious to go back and revisit Soderbergh's other films, like looking for that particular message. But I have to say, like I, I think this letter is really interesting and well observed. That particular thing didn't trigger me.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I want to just make a quick point, too, about this notion of the tension between uh, the high-tech filmmaking ethos of Soderbergh in the analog world, the protagonists of Logan Lucky, because I think they're closer together than the letter suggests. So the sense that the reason why Soderbergh has has embraced so much digital filmmaking and in these what appear to be higher tech tools is actually to kind of get closer to the bone than he was when he was working in film i mean he you know he, when he started working digitally he he himself was starting to operate the camera we talked about him taking more and more of a personal role in making his film so there's a diy quality to Soderbergh's work particularly his, his later work that's quite unusual and may actually be closer to you know the analog world of uh, the logan lucky characters than we might assume so that's <laughs> my thought So we also, speaking of Logan Lucky, had a lot of praise. We, in this group, had a lot of praise for Daniel Craig's unexpected turn uh, in the film. But one listener feels we should not have found it that unexpected. Tasha?
0: So Kurt writes... I very much enjoyed your podcasts comparing Ocean's Eleven and Logan Lucky. However, I was a bit taken aback by your collective surprise at Daniel Craig's audacious performance in that latter film. You seem to have forgotten that unlike many of his predecessors in the role of 007, Craig didn't come to the Bond franchise having played similarly suave and debonair characters. I'm thinking specifically of Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan. Prior to getting tapped for Bond, Craig had a very interesting, diverse filmography, playing very unique, distinctive roles. He was the roguish, dangerous handyman who romances an older woman in The Mother, the cowardly, venal, yet protected son of a mob boss in The Road to Perdition, an unhinged mental patient in The Jacket, and the repressed writer who finds his life spinning out of control after witnessing a tragic accident and coming in contact with an unbalanced stranger in Enduring Love. Craig's ability to vanish into a role in much the same way as Gary Oldman early in his career was one of the reasons the announcement of his casting as Bond was met with such incredulity. His proven acting skills are in large part the reason his Bond is imbued with a greater depth of character than his predecessors. Logan Lucky is less a departure for Craig and more a return to form. All
1: well, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and, I, and I do, of course, remember Craig getting the job as 007 was sort of like, this ain't your grandpa's... <laughs> James Bond this is going to be gritty area this is going to have uh, more of an edge to it and so that explains the casting there so I I get it though I think this is has he ever been this colorful?
0: Well, okay. I, this is, <laughs> this letter specifically cites four examples, uh, none of which I've seen. Yeah,
2: but, that's just it. I've seen Road to Perdition, uh, which is kind of an underrated movie, but these are films that I, eh, to my shame, I have not seen. So that that, that sort of Whitman sampler of uh, Daniel Craig uh, performances uh, <laughs> is something I, I I have not tasted.
1: I like that metaphor. It's all uh, sort of, what wouldn't you want to eat in a Whitman sampler? Like all coconut. All, all coconut.
0: Oh, no. I'll take your coconut. You can have my caramels. (laughs) To me, he's uh, he's one of those rock hard caramels that gets caught in your teeth. No, uh, seeing this film, I I think I said how much further can we take this? How (laughs) much?
1: Wait, you don't like caramel?
0: I Whitman Sampler caramels. Uh. They're made entirely out of rocks.
2: I like them with lettuce.
0: Are you kidding? The, the lettuce gets warm and it's so gross. Yeah. Uh, can we say something about you know poking the bottoms uh, of the Whitman's chocolates? I like, I like to a see little what's more
1: elevated a, a chocolate sampler than Whitman's. I think you can do a little better than that, right?
0: I think you can, but I'm not sure you can do that much better Daiwa, than, for
1: example, Giordelli's.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure you could do that much better than than Daniel Craig here. No, uh, this Logan Lucky. I think I said at the time made me really want to revisit more of his film- filmography and uh, now i've got a whitman sampler of uh, titles that i should be revisiting apparently
1: <laughs> okay we're gonna leave that there uh i well i did want to wrap this up with a couple of other notes on Soderbergh. first some listeners mentioned that stanley kubrick's the killing was the obvious choice to pair with logan lucky since both are heist pictures set at a racetrack we agree uh the only trouble is that we paired kubrick's paths of glory with wonder woman you know what a couple of weeks before and didn't want to go back to Kubrick uh, that soon. Uh, second, listener Will strongly recommends the 2007 Spanish language heist movie, Ladron Que Roba El Ladron, or Thief That Robs a Thief, as a good Ocean's Eleven supplement. Will says it rips off oceans shamelessly but has a lot of heart, and makes the immigrant experience both text and subtext. So maybe check that out if you can track it down.
0: Yeah, I remember Thief Who Robs Thieves uh, as a really entertaining movie in that same kind of uh, fast-moving, heist-oriented, thieves-as-gentlemen-adventurers kind of way. Uh, It's a really entertaining film.
2: What's that movie about,
0: though? Um, Well, it's about a thief, Uh and he robs somebody. But that somebody is also a thief. Oh, that's mm. that's the big twist. Also, talking about pairings that we didn't make, we we talked quite a bit about potentially pairing uh, Logan Lucky with Sex Lies and Videotape, and doing a, an end to end on Soderbergh mm-hmm. and considering his career. I think we also thought about uh, various other Soderberghs that might have run. In the middle of the podcast, butter.
1: we thought that <laughs> we thought the bubble would be a pretty good one. <laughs> um, so, as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations to reach us. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. That wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll see how our interpretation of mother matches up with Darren Aronofsky's. Look for that later in the week. Or, better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com Picture nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, wait, where did these sheep come from? See you next time
0: could your the colored swans of angels come to kill your sons, and there's nothing but black holes where the stars should have been.